it. And all these different things that are times in our world, and we might be blind. We might sing the song that Van sang that said, maybe I won't be blind this time. You know, maybe I'll have a little bit more experience, so I'll be able to see this time around, and maybe when God's time is now, I'll be ready, and I will be able to see what needs to be seen. All right. I've been sharing with you during this study about some of the times when I couldn't see. Some of the times when I had yet to be aware of the systems of injustice in our world, when I'd been yet to be aware of how my whiteness made things different for me than it did for other people in our country, and how stupid I felt each time I became aware, and not just stupid necessarily, but ashamed in some ways, and aghast in other ways, and some one time physically ill, of what it means to be able to see, you know, what you haven't seen before. And so here, as we talk about God's time as now, God's always reaching out to us to let us know, but we have to be willing to let our eyes see and our ears hear what's going on. So maybe this time we'll be able to see. Some things are a little bit easier, though. Some things seem easier to see, like we have this thing going on because of marriage equality where now they're trying to pass all of these religious freedom acts where people get religious refusals, which essentially means we don't have to treat people the same. We can have straights-only restaurants and bathrooms and caterers and anything else that we need because we can have religious refusals. Religious refusals. Just because I don't believe the way you believe, then we can refuse you. So we can see that. Does that seem just to you or fair in any way? No, it's not. And it's just so visible for us. Maybe... Maybe this time we can see, right? We can see that. And so the challenge for us, you can see that so easily, is can we also see all the different codes and laws and rules that have been put in place to keep people of color out of certain spaces? When we look at the rate of mass incarceration and the disproportionate population of people in prison, can we see that? And know that that's the result of a system that's been put in place. Can we see stand-your-ground laws and who they end up killing, who they end up intimidating? Can we look and can our eyes see what these things are about? Does it matter that stand-your-ground laws started off as shoot-first laws? That's the history. The first time they were, pro- they were proposed was shoot-first law instead of stand your ground. Can we see the harm that's being caused? We can look at some of those prison counts and some of those killings in the streets and look at the disproportionate rate people are affected by that, and maybe we can see those numbers. Sometimes it's not as easy to see or we don't want to see a different kind of numbers, the numbers that are preceded by dollar signs. You know those kind of numbers that are preceded by dollar signs? But because of this system that is in place now, it affects the way people are able to provide for their families and the way people are able to live in this world. And some would look at that and say, that's okay, that's the way it's supposed to be. The prophet Amos is saying to us today, oh no, did you like his words? (laughs) Prophet Amos is saying, oh no, we don't treat people differently like this. And I want to share with you uh, a report that was put out that talks about what has happened in our country as a racial gap financially. And the report is called The Asset Value of Whiteness. 
And it says sometimes when we talk about the asset value of whiteness, we get a little bit um, uncomfortable. And it says sometimes we like to look at groups that aren't like us and we like to say to them, well, they just need to work harder. Heard that? They just need to wait to have children until they get married. Have you heard that one? They just need to not spend so much money, right? All of these things we like to say to people that as if by their own personal means they're able to undo a system that doesn't pay what it's supposed to pay or a system that doesn't treat people fairly. We would rather make it a personal character flaw than own up to the fact that it is rigged in the way that it is. That's hard. I, I mean, it's much easier for me to see religious refusal acts than it is to see what's happening right now before us and that we've become so used to. Go to college. Spend less. Get married. You know? Then everything will be okay. Well, this report, the asset value of... Uh, go back to the first slide, please, Connie. It shows that the median white household has 13 times the wealth of the median African-American household and 10 times the wealth of Latino household. And the report puts forth, this was released in February of this year, that no amount of personal effort is going to undo this. No amount of personal effort is going to undo this. Something else has to happen. And so further in the report, in the asset value of whiteness, it says this in response. The median... So they say get married, right? Get married. The median white single parent has two point times more wealth than the median black married two-parent household. Personal responsibility is not going to change that. Also, it says spend less. What's happening right now, the average white household spends 1.3 times more than the average black household in the same income group making the same level of income already, black households spend less money than their white counterparts. So this myth of what people can do on their own, these character flaws they can overcome is a myth and causes barriers to be erected in changing what needs to be changed. Are we ready to have eyes to see? Further in that report, in the, value, in the asset value of whiteness, it was put out by the Demos group, which, whose purpose is to raise middle-income wealth, middle-income families. And it says, the racial wealth gap was created by public policies that cemented structural racism into our laws and systems, and only public policies can eliminate it for centuries. For centuries white households enjoyed wealth-building opportunities that were systemically denied to people of color. No individual personally is going to be able to overcome centuries of being denied. Now, exceptionalism preaches this is as it should be. Those who have it ought to have it. Those that don't ought not, and God wants it that way. Let's listen to the prophet Amos who speaks up and says, look at what you're doing. God's not happy. Since 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, Africans and their descendants in the U.S. and, frankly, around the world have known and had our lives shaped by the knowledge that 
at any given moment, our rights as people of this land, as our rights as citizens of this great nation can be terminated by the system of whiteness or of the myth of exceptionalism. What we've taught our girls, and perhaps it's taught in all African-American homes or people of color's home, is that racism is a system that has enslaved people into whiteness. We are not bound to this system because we don't benefit from it. So if it disappeared tomorrow, we would rejoice. But there are those who are enslaved to racism because to lose the system of whiteness, to lose the system of racism means that admitting perhaps that you're not exceptional, but that you have gained some benefit because of the complexion of your skin. So we tell our girls, no little ones, that you have to be twice as good to receive at least half of your worth. But we need you to know your own truth. You are worthy. Former President Obama said after the Trayvon Martin verdict, now the question is, where do we take this? How do we learn some lessons from this and move into a positive direction? How, in fact, do we rewrite a new history? I say to that, we don't write a new history. I believe we must own our history as a nation and as a people, and then we need to repent from it by rejecting the myth of exceptionalism. And then and only then can we write a new future. Just like the Israelites in Amos's time, we've thrived in this land of milk and honey. And we've betrayed what it means to have the freedom of God, the sense that there is enough for all of us. Because living into the freedom of God means that we both recognize the divinity in all of God's creation, and we work to ensure that the land truly is free. We call ourselves the land of the free and the home of the brave, but I ask us, can we honestly say that we really are? In our scripture, Israel was in a time of crisis and chaos, and into this time, God brought forth prophets. These prophets held Israel accountable for its history, the history of being led from bondage into freedom, then to the enslavement of other people. The prophets reminded the Israelites that they had the responsibility as a nation to live into the very freedom from which they were chosen. You see, they had a job to do. They were to offer the freedom of God to all they encountered. It meant that they needed to live namaste. The divine spark of God in me sees and recognizes and values the worth of the divine spark of God in you. The ancient Greeks say that there are two different kinds of time. Kronos and Kairos. Now, Kronos time is quantitative time. It is our seconds, our minutes, our hours, our days, our months. But Kairos is qualitative. It measures moments, not seconds. 
It refers to the right moment, the opportune moment, the perfect moment. It is when the world takes a breath, and in that pause before it exhales, fates can be changed. I believe we're in a Kairos time, a time of great opportunity, the right time for us as a nation to make changes for a better future for all people. So I ask, will we be the prophets who say black lives matter because we know historically they have not? And that if we don't, who will? Will we call for immigration reform so that children who have lived here all of their lives, or most of their lives, don't have to go to a country where they have never been? Will we go to Austin on March the 6th and tell our legislators that using religion as a weapon, any kind of weapon of discrimination is morally wrong. That trans people deserve the dignity to pee where they want to pee. Yeah. tell them that a woman's body is hers and hers alone to govern? Will we stand for our siblings who are Native American who want to protect their water rights and their sacred spaces? God is calling us to a new way of being with each other and with God. Will we answer the call to be prophets of the freedom of God? Will we show others what it means to stand together? A couple of weeks ago, Reverend Choi told us about Reverend Dr. James Ford, who asked MCC at General Conference in 2013, what if MCC is the answer to the question that the church has been asking itself? What he was talking about was marriage equality. But I've always believed we have a larger calling in the world. What if we are being called to be the prophets of living a new way forward? What if we are being called as prophets to lead our world? And God's time is now. James Forbes did such a good job asking that question, I wanted you to see it. So I found the clip of him doing it, and I want to have you watch it with me.
I love the way he just started dancing on stage. <laughs> you know. Uh, and then he came back and had some more words for us about this sublime satisfaction. I want to share with those to you because it's how do we live into this now, into this moment. And, and to do so, he said, there's some things about sublime satisfaction you need to know. It is, can be the fulfillment of peace, compassion, justice, and reverence for creation. And it is found in our awareness. It is found in our awareness to the connection of God in us and God in all things. The awareness will give us the greatest joy possible, James says. And he goes on to say, we could come to the place that we finally really believe that God is in us, but that the God that is in us is also in all of God's other creatures like us and not like us. And that all of us have a place in God because God is in us. And if we begin to respect and work together, stand together, and the awareness that God is the work in all of it, then we will discover a power in ourselves, a capacity for transforming prophetic leadership out of darkness into the light of full inclusion of all people. Can we be that kind of faithful people that trust God in us and is able to see God in all around us? Can we be that kind of exceptional, that kind of believer? So, Resurrection MCC, what if this is our mission? To first live and then call others to live into the freedom of God. I look around this room on Sunday mornings, and I see sitting in our pews the world. There are Buddhists here, Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, agnostics, atheists, as well as Christians. I'd venture to guess that there are over 30 dialects spoken in this room right now. We are a people of multiple sexualities, gender fluidity, political views and every hue from ebony to ivory. And we're sitting here together, being present with each other, accepting each other just as we are. So what if we are indeed the prophets of what the freedom of God can be like in our world? We don't have to believe all the same things. We don't have to have the same kind of worldview. But we show up each and every week, week after week, and we break bread, and we lift the cup, regardless of what the person sitting next to us believes, what they doubt, most importantly, I believe that we see the divinity in each other. What if our 45-year struggle, <laughs> our 45-year experiment of being the people of God is what God is calling us to be prophets of, not only to our nation but to the world, 
What if we are to lead in speaking out and calling up and advocating for and creating the beloved community? The time of God is now. The time of God is always now. Will we have eyes to see? Will we have ears to hear, to act into God's love for the world? For everything there is a time. Will we, in our 45-year experiment, learn to rewrite the future of love in action? Will we re rewrite it in the way we learned about God's love through Jesus? See, this exceptionalism stuff is about power. And what Jesus did was refuse power in order to be you. And in being you, redeem you for God. Jesus chose to set aside power. Is that the kind of love and action we can be the answer for? Not that we have a light to tell other people this is what we believe and it's true, but that we have a Jesus who continues to show us how to be a servant how to be those who love all and see God in all. The time of God is now, resurrection. Perhaps we are the answer, this experiment of living together, different races, different languages, different faith histories. Perhaps this experiment gives us something to say and somehow to be in this divided world. The time of God is now. Let's write a new future of love in action. Amen. Amen.